The Seahawks got back on track with a win against the Rams in LA on Sunday, improving to 7-5 and five and taking a step towards solidifying their playoff position. Still, a close win against a depleted team leaves plenty of questions as Seattle heads into the final month of the season. Senior NFL writer for The Athletic and Pro Football Hall of Fame voter Mike Sando joins us to break it all down. Let's light them up. I'm Jackson Bevins, and this is Cigar Thoughts. Welcome back to the Cigar Lounge. I am Jackson Bevins, and along with my tenacious producer, Mike Barwin, this is the Cigar Thoughts Podcast. Mike, how are we doing today? We're doing great, Jackson. It's been three full days, and I still haven't gotten the excitement out of me. The Seahawks beat the Rams. I couldn't care less if Aaron Donald wasn't playing. Matt Stafford wasn't playing. Cooper Cup wasn't playing. The entire roster wasn't playing. Who are those guys? The Seahawks won in Los Angeles, and it wasn't against the Chargers. They also did that this season, but I'll take a win against the Rams any way they come, man. Yeah, absolutely, man. What a game that was. You were there. You were inside SoFi. Tell me what that game was like to witness in person. It was beautiful. It was delicious. The tears were flowing. The fans were <laughs> heading for the exits with 30 seconds Do Rams seconds fans left. care enough to cry? Do, do the Rams fans care enough? There was there was quite a vocal contingent of Seahawks fans. Like you said, you know, the uh, uh, 12s travel well, which was cool. It was especially sweet that it was DK Metcalf dunking on Jalen Ramsey in the final seconds. And, you know, it's uh, been a trademark of DK that he wears a binky during – a lot of games, but I'm glad that he passed that off to Jalen on Sunday. <laughs> okay, I do want to know, though, like, the the vibes in that stadium on the final drive because, you know, the game got off to a real back-and-forth start, and then it really settled in for, like, the middle 40 minutes, and then you get two touchdown drives right at the end. Talk to me about how that stadium felt as the Rams went down to score and then as the Seahawks returned the favor. I, I surely am a bit biased, uh, as many may recognize, but it really wasn't that loud except for like the key downs at certain, you know, when the Seahawks were deep in Rams territory, the final drive was, but it was just kind of, it felt like a three and nine season, you know, but mm-hmm. I mean, Bobby Wagner's electric game really jacked things up a few that times. was so cool so that was so i mean cool, it was it, it was awesome it was just a great experience got to witness gino's first true game winning drive in person so really grateful for that yeah man and look i said this in the article on sunday i'll say it again now i am not in the business of discounting nfl wins no matter who they come against they all count the same when it comes time to hand out playoff spots and my feeling is there are no bad nfl teams just less excellent ones That being said, the Rams team was as hamstrung as any team I can remember in terms of missing star power anyway, and it took some last minute heroics to get it done. It does raise the question of how much better this team's performance actually was compared to the close losses against the Bucks and the Raiders. Fortunately, we're joined by one of the premier pens in the NFL writing community to help us figure that out. He is the senior NFL writer for The Athletic and wields a vote with the Pro Football Hall of Fame. He is the venerable Mike Sando. Mike, thanks for taking the time. It is good to be here. Thanks for having me. We'll definitely talk about this in the CX. I, you know, my first year covering the CX as a beat reporter was 1998, and I've been in the Seattle area since then. So I've seen a couple of these games, seen a couple of these teams, dealt with the changing expectations of teams. I think that's really <laughs> what we're talking about here is, 
coming into this year, the sky is falling. They traded Russell Wilson. It's Drew Locke, Geno Smith. Oh my gosh, are they going to win three games? Maybe that's fine. They can draft a quarterback. They'll be of a high pick. We know Denver's going to be good. Their own pick will be high. And then you come into the season and shoot. It's better than, than anybody thought. Now we're like not happy with a sloppy win against a, a depleted Ram team, <laughs> right, right? So right. you have to just sort of calibrate that the whole way and realize this is a young team that is going to have young team things happen to them. And we've seen that. They've lost games they should have won ridiculously in some cases. They gave up 171 yards rushing to that Rams team. Ridiculous. So, uh, yes, all of these things are true, but I think you do have to zoom out to, you know, the reality of this season is, heck, we didn't know if they were going to win five games. I know it. Coming into the year. So, yeah, the, the over under in Vegas was five and a half, and most of the money was under. Yeah. And I, you know, I would have taken the over on that not by much. I believed in, I have been a little bit of a, uh, against the grain on the whole Russell Wilson, Pete Carroll thing. I believe that Pete Carroll's a great coach and I believe that he has a good program. And I believe that when you have those things, you do better than, uh, than expected when things are, are poorly going poorly. And you, you look in general, the great coaches usually don't have horrific years. Now, Jimmy Johnson's going to come into Dallas and tear it totally down. And that was almost by design, but for the most part, you don't see the really top coaches win in two games. Right. Uh, it just doesn't happen. They, they've they've got enough of the other stuff that matters. So that being said, I think even they thought that they'd be looking at Drew Locke a lot this year. So uh, and they've had Geno Smith in the building for years. Uh, so that that component of this being a surprise, um, no doubt, I think that's caught everybody um, by surprise and caused us to up our expectations. And then the defense has been. Good, bad, terrible. It's been all <laughs> yeah. over the place. And I think that's the inter the, the interesting thing of that is just sort of the why. And, and I think it's beyond just young team. It's new scheme. And that's a very unusual thing for a defensive-minded head coach to do, right? Could you imagine Mike Holmgren bringing in a different offensive coordinator to run a different offense? Never would have happened in a million years. You don't do that. Sean McVay's not hiring somebody to tweak the offense, right? One of the things that makes Pete Carroll, I think, a great coach is that he's bigger enough picture and he will, he did that. So they brought in this sort of Fangio flavored scheme, but I think they found out along the way that with these young players that they're not really capable of implementing it fully without having disaster happen. And so that's why we saw the first couple games. It was like, Daryl Taylor looks terrible. They're getting run, they're getting run on all over the place. Then they, I think what they did is they said, okay, Let's not be as all in on the scheme. Let's go back to some of the things we were doing that we're comfortable with. And it starts to look a little better. Then they try to blend in some more of the scheme here and there. Right. And then it maybe doesn't look as good. So I think that's been a little bit of the give and take uh, is how are they playing their fronts? Right. Cause I think the new defense is more like, Hey, we'll give you a little more in the running game. Cause we want to be able to play the pass, but it has resulted in guys thinking and just it not looking good and aggressive. Yeah. Yeah. I want to dive into that a little bit more specifically here in a second, but one of the reasons we were so excited to have you on the show is, you know, one, you're very familiar with the Seahawks franchise, but you've also got a view of the entire league. And I want to dip into that for a moment. Uh, first of all, your, your point about Pete Carroll, I think at this point, his program, as you put it, and, and that's how he refers to it also is unassailable at, 
at this point. I mean, they have as many wins already as they had all of last season. And, you know, you're right. There there was no, they just skipped the step of having the really bad year, uh, the the quote unquote tank year. And and I think that certainly for me, and, and I'm someone that has gone back and forth a little bit on Pete Carroll over the last few years, it, it is solidified that almost no matter what happens, as long as he's the coach, there is now a firm entrenched belief that I have that the team is going to be all right. But like you said, coming into the season, it's no secret that expectations were not high for this team. In fact, many people around the league thought they could be the worst team in the NFL this year. So talk to us a little bit about that collective impression and then how the conversation has changed in the three months since. Well, nobody. So I do the quarterback tears thing every year, right? Where I talk mm-hmm. to 50 people in the league and we take all of the guys who could be a starter in the NFL, the veterans, there's usually 35 of them or so. And I ask the coaches and the executives to put them in a tier, tier one, you know, Mahomes, whatever. Um, and tier five would be like, you're not even a starter. Well, of the 35 players, there's almost no one ever comes in in tier five. Uh, you, you'll get some fours. Uh, a lot of guys in tier four, you know, but that's going to be the Sam Darnold tier, right? Shoot. Geno Smith got, was the only guy in tier five because <laughs> he hadn't played in so long. And even when he played last year, like they, they win the Jacksonville game, but it was a deep, it looked like they scored a lot of points, but it was a defensive effort. Right. I mean, it wasn't, I don't think it ever really looked that great. Now the, it, it may have in there. They may have had one really good drive against the Rams. Maybe when he first came in, that was pretty good. But for it the most part, it was a really good drive. It was really good. Yeah. <laughs> really good it drive. was, it was, you, it was a great drive, but I think, you know, the league from afar is looking at Geno Smith going, what are they doing? And drew Locke also. So I think that's where the perception was that it was going to be a down year. I think people in the league still held Pete Carroll in, in high regard, but Look, if you're going into a year without even trying to have a quarterback, that's what it was perceived to be, um, you know. And then I think while while Russell Wilson's stock was falling and he had fallen into tier two, people thought there was going to be a drop off, um, you know, from what he would be at least healthy. And so that's where a lot of the and, and then I think the, here's another thing: the young talent here has almost always been. Um, underestimated. If you go back to the first run where they got to the playoffs, there were a lot of people who didn't think anything of a lot of the young players then. So there's an unknown characteristic of the young players and uh, in mid-round draft picks, you know, to, to someone who evaluated Tariq Wolin in the draft, I mean, he was just the rawest guy. No one's counting on him being any good, right? So there's there were some unknown things. And when it's unknown to from afar, you look at that as all likely uh negatives all likely uh bets that aren't going to be cashed right yep (laughs) internally they sort of know which ones might cash and i think internally in the seahawks there's been you know a little bit of uh uh maybe the words frustration is too strong but as they had this older team or, or they had a team that was sort of bobby wagner on one side and russ on the other I think they weren't as eager or willing to play the young guys. And so they had some young guys on this team that I think certainly personnel department and and others could have been excited about, but nationally people weren't in on, weren't excited about. And I think what happened in, in in releasing Bobby Wagner and in trading Russ, I think it freed Pete Carroll and the coaching staff and everybody to just go back into playing young guys. Just, you know what, let's do it. And that's where they hit their stride last time. And so, so all these young players aren't all busts. Some of them look pretty good. I think that's why they, that's why there was such a big gap between the national perception 
and what's actually happening. And you have to give them credit for that because it wasn't necessarily very predictable. Yeah, no, I mean, no question about that. And before we get into the, the Rams game, I'm just curious what tier you think, if you were to redo that survey now, yeah. What tier is Geno slotting into? What other quarterbacks are in that tier with him? Yeah, I think he for sure goes into the, you know, the upper tier three at least, which is where you've had Kenneth Kirk Cousins and Jimmy Garoppolo. Sometimes those guys will get it some tier two votes, but most in tier three. I think people still want to see how it finishes and how the year goes on. Uh, but he certainly looks like a tier tier three would be, you know, uh, kind of a a solid starter. But in order to really win. You know, you probably want to you, you probably want to have a complimentary style a little bit. You know, be pretty good on defense and in the run game. And to Gino's credit, he's been good even when they haven't had those things sometimes. So that's why I'm saying I think the potential is for him to be uh, maybe in the in to get into tier two. Uh, you, you know, yeah. which is kind of tier two. A lot of times in tier two, um, you could have Pro Bowl quarterbacks in there. You know, that that could be Dak Prescott. That could be. Uh, uh, you know, uh, Matt Ryan a couple of years ago, right? When when he was going pretty good. Matt Stafford, for a lot of his career, has been tier two. I think when you have a tier two, you feel like you probably could win it all, you know, if you had the right things or you get to the Super Bowl, right? Matt Ryan in any given year could totally. be an MVP if everything, if he's got Kyle Shanahan and Julio Jones, right? Yeah. Uh, and then the other years, he might just be pretty good. So I think Geno's kind of got to get some consideration if this holds up. I think he's going to get some tier two votes. Yeah, yeah. I, and I mean, look, the guy is top five in just about every metric. Yeah. You know, it's it's one thing to complete 73% of your passes, which has only been done once ever. But he's doing it with like a pretty robust average depth of target, too. It's not like he's just Jimmy Garoppolo, late career Drew Brees, late career Ben Roethlisberger checking down to running backs and slip routes to tight ends. He's driving the ball down the field and still remaining really, really efficient. I'll, I will be very, very curious to see where he slots in when you ask this question again next year. But I do want to get into this Rams game because while many of us were hoping Seattle would leave with a more comfortable win, it did deliver what I think is the moment of the Seahawks season. And we'll get to that play in a minute, but I'm curious about your takeaways from everything that led up to it. You mentioned the defense already and and how they adjusted, you know, the Rams have been atrocious running the football this year. They, I, I don't, think a team in my lifetime has ever gone through as much turnover on the offensive line as they have this year. They've had 12 different, I think 12, 12 different lineups, maybe even 12 different starting lineups up front in 12 games, which is insane. But you know, the defense struggled early in the game. They couldn't get a stop on the last drive. Well, second to last drive, but in between they were pretty good. So yeah. this team was white hot in October uh, on defense when they had the four game winning streak, they were getting sacks, they were turning the ball over, they were keeping teams to 20 points or less. And then that's gotten away from them the last couple of weeks. What do you see there that is sustainable moving forward? Are you expecting more of what we saw from the bulk of that Rams game? Or is it more like, yeah, they're still pretty susceptible to what happened at the beginning and the end. Every time I think that they're, they've turned the corner and got it figured out, then they sort of surprise me. They're like, I thought they were going to maybe roll the Bucks, okay, in that game. I just thought the Bucks, older team, I didn't know they were going to play in a in a pasture. You know, the, the field was a factor <laughs> in that thing, too. But, sure. but I just thought at that point, I was kind of buying in. I was like, you know what? These guys are playing fast, and I think they've turned the corner. So then when I, whenever I've thought that, I've been reminded, you know what, young team, uh, maybe it's some of that scheme stuff, which I'm not a scheme expert, so I can't, I'm not going to say exactly, I don't know exactly 
what the tweaks are making. I think that they did make adjustment during the Ram game. And so I think there are some dials there that they can turn and they need to turn those uh, so that that doesn't happen. I think the Ram game could have, it was one of those where early in the game, I think they had opportunities, maybe there's a turnover here or there. Um, I think if they had gotten up in the game, it's a totally different game. It looks like, in, you know, it look, if the Rams had to be trying to throw, I think the game could have totally got away from them. But I, I think McVeigh knew that too, because the first couple of drives when the Rams were moving the ball with these, you're still within that first 15 yeah. plays, the script, right? Yeah. And, and McVeigh is, I mean, it's like him and Andy Reid when it comes to scripting the openings uh, of games. And I thought it was so interesting that they didn't try and run the ball at Seattle. Instead, they got really horizontal and, even, you know, with Cam Akers, he was running off a tackle instead of off the center or off guard. They were running the jet sweeps with Powell and Atwell. But after that, Seattle really clamped down. And I don't think that can be overstated because there was so much at the beginning of the game. You know, the, the text threads that I had going with buddies. Yeah. Seeing on Twitter, everyone's like, oh, my God, this defense fucking Horrible. sucks yeah. still. It, it, you know? it does and, suck sometimes. It has <laughs> it sucked. Does. No, Genuinely it totally sucked. At times, it it totally did, and 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 that initial impression of the game, I think, overshadowed how well they played for the rest of it. Uh, yeah. You know, uh, one thing in particular, John Wolford started off seven of eight for ninety eight yards, but then after that, he was only seven of eighteen for eighty. Um, <laughs> is you know, that the, what it was, man? Yeah, that's yeah. Which that's is what it should be. So, and that's what it should be, right? So, uh, you know, I want to get your thoughts on it. But this morning, KJ Wright was on Seattle Sports Seven Ten today, and he had some cool insights as to how the Seahawks adjusted. It's a little bit more scheme specific. Excellent, uh, I would Mike. Love you to have hear that, that quote? Yeah, I do. I do. And quickly before I jump into that quote, I just like to say that I really appreciate the fact that we finally have a majority of mics on this podcast. So, <laughs> Jackson, I just wanted to ask: Does your seat feel a little toasty? Yeah, you know, the it revolution does. coming. We're organizing, man. It, it, uh-huh. You know, you know, it was a big letdown. Is when in the beginning of the show, when he was, when Jackson was teeing up Mike, I was all excited. I thought he was teeing up me, and then you started talking. I was like, I guess I'm not. It's not even my turn <laughs> yeah, yet. I better I know. things. Things can get know, confusing. Wait, I my can turn. See I'm the second Mike this in this. Uh, <laughs> all right. All right. Okay. So right, hey, KJ hey. Wright. So so yeah. So bad Mike, if KJ, you could give us, me. yeah, yeah. If if bad Mike can give us the KJ Wright quote, then we'll get good Mike's thoughts on it. There we go. We've we've stratified things. Okay, so KJ said, you've got the bare front, stick front defense. The Seahawks did load the box in the first drive, that eighth man in the box. But what happens with this bare front is that the C-gap is wide open. And what the Rams were running is a play that I call a stretch flex. So when I say flex, that means away from the tight end. And what the Rams were doing, they were running flex away from the tight end and cutting the ball all the way back into the C-gap. And when they were cutting the ball back into that wide open C gap, they were cracking Ryan Neal to safety. So what does that do? That leaves a big C gap for the cornerback to fill. I love Tariq Woolen. I'd rather him get eight interceptions than try to tackle Cam Akers for a two-yard gain. So that's what they were doing. Excellent. They kept running that, and all of their plays came off of that. The fly sweeps, the play actions, everything was coming off the same action, gashing us. Excellent. So, you know, obviously then they must have made some adjustment off of that, but it may not be something they can just instantly do in the moment right? right and so they're getting to that point so so obviously carolina's carolina's coming off of a bye right is that carolina coming off a bye this week yep. so they've looked at all of that it'll be interesting to see you know just now when we're a little bit tentative on seattle with that defense are we gonna is this the game now where 
you know, Seattle rolls them and has the answers like they should at home against the Carolina team? Or does Carolina have some other scheme or trick that really takes advantage of whatever Seattle's trying to do? I think that'll well, be... Carolina's coming off a game against the Broncos, so they must be feeling like world beaters, huh? <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, Carolina. Unbelievable. So that means the Seattle guys are watching that film, too. They're watching oh, some Russ Oh, my film. God. I didn't you think anything think about was said that. about yeah. the Russ film in the room? <laughs> Uh, well, you know, keeping it on the subject of quarterbacks, this this was the game we all felt Geno Smith was capable of. But I really think that this was the inflection point in his story. 29-38, 367 yards, three touchdowns. I mean, those are big boy stats. That's not just being efficient and taking what the defense gives you. There was no running game after Ken Walker got hurt, DJ Dallas got hurt, Travis Homer was hurt. You're running a practice squad reclamation project and Tony Jones Jr. out there. They they pretty much gave up on, on the run down the stretch, leaned into Geno, and, and he delivered. Uh, is there anything left you need to see? from Smith in order to be comfortable you know, committing to him longer term? Uh, no, I, I think the, there was one th- after about four or five games, you could see that the fundamentals of his play were solid. It wasn't a fluky thing with play yeah. action gimmickry, right? I mean, that he was actually making the reads, the throws, the checks at the line. He was a full adult quarterback. Um, then my, when I was asked what his concern is, I was like, okay, I think there is a mindset and a challenge to being a full season starter in the league. I think when you come in as a backup, uh, how you play, how you take care of yourself, uh, the hits you take, all of those things. I think he definitely sounds like he has a maturity in his life for how he prepares, how he eats, how he does all those things that the quarterback has to do to be um, a franchise quarterback. So now we've made it in this far. There's been a couple times he took some hits this year where I was like, ooh, ooh, that could have been. In fact, in this game, he took an elbow to the throat. Did you see that? Yeah. <laughs> that was like the weirdest yeah. thing. I was like, oh, how's he going to talk at the line of scrimmage? But so for me, I just want to see him, you know, start all the games and get through the season because all of the good quarterbacks, for the most part, not, I mean, not all of them, but most of the really good quarterbacks play a ton of games. Do you notice that? Like, like they, they don't miss five games here or there. Some guys who do, maybe they just have some bad luck, but all those guys in that tier two bucket for the most part. Now Stafford's at a different stage of his career, but for for ten years Stafford played all the games. Mm-hmm. For ten years, Matt Ryan. I mean, played he was playing games. with like a broken back for yeah. entire seasons. For ten years, though, you know, Matt Ryan played all the games. For ten years, Russell Wilson played all the games, right? And so I, I think there is a ch- Philip Rivers for fifteen years played the games. Uh, you know, Eli Manning, <laughs> all those guys play the game. So I, I would like to see that, I think, you know, just, just be able to, to do this for the whole year. And he's, he's made it this far. He looks good. Um, and, and now how he finishes will determine sort of what taste is in your mouth, right? If he has some bad games down the stretch or misses a stretch, it clouds that evaluation a little bit. I think that Niners game is going to be, is going to be the real litmus test. If he can go out and I'm not saying he needs to throw for 367 yards to, you know, prove himself against the Niners, but what they can't do is not score a touchdown again. You know, they, they need to, the, the threat of scoring has to be there in a way that it wasn't the first time those two teams. You're right. They got 
shut down. I mean, that was yeah. that was the game with the terrible fake, right? The terrible throw, the terrible like <laughs> running back throwing. Wasn't that it? It sure Anytime was. Anytime you have the opportunity to put the game in DJ Dallas's hands, yeah. you got to do it. <laughs> but but that's almost like what you do because you don't want to put it in your quarterback's hands sometimes down in there, right? So like I think they feel differently about Geno. Remember after that, Pete even said like, "God, I guess we realized after the first two games, Geno can do more than the than yeah. even we thought." So I think that totally. is a great that is a great test. Like, I agree. They don't have to light up the 49ers defense. I'm not sure who's going to do that, but <laughs> let's have it not look primitive and that they can't do anything. So that could take a real game plan because they may not be able to run the ball on them. You know, that yeah. they may have to really uh, do that. So maybe yeah. that's what you you want to see the rest of the way. And I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit. I, I do want to talk about the Panthers game and the rest of the season. Uh, before we do that, I want to get your thoughts on what's become my favorite rivalry in football. Hell, it might be my favorite rivalry in all of sports. I am, of course, referring to DK Metcalf versus Jalen Ramsey. Yeah. The mutual talent, the animosity. It makes this such a marquee matchup. And I don't think I've even seen them be at each other's throats the way they were in this one. I mean, they were jawing in the middle of plays. They're getting personal fouls. You got DK gesturing for Jalen Ramsey to follow him on motion. Oh, my God. That that was... Jalen was first going, all right, where are you going, pal? And then he's like, hey, come on over here. Let's go. Totally. Totally. So so let me ask you this. You've been around NFL teams for a long time. You know what affects these guys that maybe the rest of us don't see. When players see a moment like that from DK Metcalf, well, first of all, when they see one of their champions going right at the other team's champion all game, what kind of effect does that have on them? And then piggybacking off of that, when they call DK's number with the game on the line against Jalen Ramsey and he comes through, I mean, I got to think that there is a, a seismic effect on the sideline in that locker room when something like that happens. There's definitely an effect when you're backing it up. You know, I think the person who's, you know, I think there was like, if you go back a couple of years, you know, uh, remember that playoff game where they sort of got the better of DK. Remember that uh, against yep. the Rams where they sort of, he was out of sorts. And I think if you remember that pick six, I know it wasn't a Ramsey pick six, was it? Remember they got a pick six off of it Russ? It was uh, Darius Williams, I but believe. That, but they threw that ball to DK because he'd been pouting and was upset earlier in the game. And so it was like, hey, we're going to throw, we're going to force one to DK here. So there's been a process here because then you feel like earlier on you weren't sure DK had the upper hand or, you know, right. Or, or you yeah. weren't sure he was backing this up. There were some games where he didn't get the ball and maybe Russ couldn't find him, you know, or wasn't thrown to him. There were some other, there were some of those chances. So I think this is a real nice kind of progress uh, in it. I think it does get everybody fired up when you're backing it up and then go to go win the game like that. That was a huge play and a huge throw by, by Geno Smith it was really sort of picture perfect. And it was so interesting to me that like on Sunday nights, I'm doing, you know, I'm writing a huge column for Monday. I'm trying to watch as many of the games as I can. I actually was going, I actually went to the Rams website because I wanted to see if Jalen Ramsey was going to do an interview. I don't, did, did he do a post game? I never found it. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't see it. If he did, I didn't see I it. I was looking for that. So, cause I thought that would have been amazing. So, the other thing about DK was he did not gloat in his post game. He was like, "Yeah, oh, no, great didn't. team win. I couldn't have done it without Gino." I thought that that to me was such an interesting contrast to um, a couple of years ago, where his pouting leads to a pick six, basically. You know, as yep. I remember it. Um, yep. So this had to be real progress for him and them, and and um, I thought it was I thought it was really fun, and we'll see where it goes from here because Jalen Ramsey is kind of interesting, like Jalen Ramsey on a losing team doesn't work very well. Like that's when he's in Jacksonville, remember Tom Coughlin, I'm sure was a tyrant or whatever. And, and, but, but 
when he was losing there, like it was a problem. He had to get out. So this will be an interesting thing to me as this rivalry goes on. Is this a one-year blip for the Rams? Right. Y- you know? Right. I, I don't know. We're going to talk about that in a second. Uh, to put a bow on the DK thing, one of the more interesting interviews I heard all offseason, I can't remember whose podcast he was on, but DK was on there talking about getting frustrated the same type of stuff that you're mentioning here and, and let, and, and admitting that it got to him and it affected yeah. the way that he played, which I, th- I thought that alone, he was 23 at the time of giving yeah. this interview showed uh, some pretty remarkable, uh, you know, self insight, but you know, he talked about how he started to see a therapist. And one of the things that he's working through with his therapist is how to not let that get to him. And, and I think it's, you hear coaches and athletes talk about it all the time keeping that even keel. And another thing, you know, he displayed that after the game, but another thing that he mentioned in that podcast interview was how he really cozied up to Bobby Wagner all season. And Bobby did the same kind of understood that like, it is a good chance I'm going to be gone after this. And someone's got to lead this team. And I see that in you and, and DK kind of sat at the feet of the master all, all season. And he seems ready. I mean, if there was ever a chance to victory lap and have some quotables. It's after you catch all eight of your targets for 127 yards and the game winner, uh, when half of that is against one of the premier corners, in the NFL and, and your arch nemesis. And you're right. He was, he was just very diplomatic after the game. And, and I think that can unlock some potential on the field. It can. Yeah. I love the rivalry and the heated rivalry, but you know, it's funny. I was thinking about, uh, uh, you know, in the, in the great old days of the Seahawks, you know, it would be Steve Largent going against Mike Haynes and Lester Hayes or, or uh, Kevin Ross and Albert Lewis of Kansas City or Louis Wright of Denver. Look them up. These are all guys with four, five, six, seven, eight Pro Bowls. And there was such a respect factor between the two that they actually praised each other. Lester Hayes was Steve Largent's PR guy. I mean, he called him the Caucasian Clydesdale. He called him the great Steve Largent. Um, there was such a healthy respect between the two. I like that too. Among the really great ones, sometimes the chipping and, and demeaning the other guy, is that really what the great ones do? Right? Isn't there, I, I mean, I like that sort of a thing, but it kind of reminds me, you know, when Aaron Curry came into the league, and remember he was trying to like get at Steven Jackson and doing late hits and stuff. It was like, I like the, I, I kind of like the two people who know they're so good that they don't sure. have to do that. And maybe that's what DK will evolve into, right? As he's maturing yeah. here and he's not just losing his mind out on the field or all of that. That After the game, he's like, yeah, I, I would love to see the next time he scores a touchdown against Jalen Ramsey. Say, you know, I got all the respect in the world for that guy. He's a, he's a good player. That might even frustrate him more. You know, you might get into his head a little bit more. Um so anyway, yeah. that's a, a side thought no, I had I think, on it of the great I think it's the yeah. difference. You know, I think that attitude is the difference between keeping milk in the fridge and keeping it on the counter. You know, there's just not much of a shelf life for that kind of toxicity. You know, like it, it, it can fire you up. And look, I mean, we've seen players feed off of that their whole career in this organization. Doug Baldwin, Richard Sherman found every chip they could, but they were also pretty diplomatic. Well, not Richard Sherman early in his career, but, but Doug Baldwin to, to keep it to wide receivers certainly was. So yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I saw that as uh, an evolution kind of in the story of DK Metcalf, because if he ever wants to get 
on the same tier as the DeAndre Hopkins, the Devonte Adams, that kind of thing. Uh, you know, I, I do think it's going to require a little bit more of that level headedness and, and keeping that fieriness between the white lines. Yeah. Imagine if, if DK just said, uh, you know, Jalen gives me as much trouble as anybody, man. That guy's a great corner, you know, really unlike a lot of other guys, he does X, Y, and Z. And it's a challenge every time. I mean, I got to be at my best, really look forward to the competition. Yeah. That might yeah. almost take Jalen out of his game. You know? <laughs> <laughs> maybe yeah. we'll take DK out of his game too, but yeah, uh, I think that'd maybe. be a cool, uh, you know, cool evolution. I like that part too, when the guys are really that good, you know, it's just like a, it's, it doesn't diminish the rivalry. Sure. Sure. No, it certainly doesn't. I mean, as, as long as Jalen Ramsey's in the NFC West, that rivalry yeah. will exist regardless of, of what they say. Okay. Looking ahead to this Sunday, the Seahawks find themselves favorites against the Carolina Panthers. My question to you, Mike is how do the Seahawks make sure they take care of business in this one? And on the flip side, how can the Panthers jump up and upset them? You know, the Panthers have been better than you would have thought for being a team with an interim coach. Uh, and they've been in some games. Um, I don't know if there's, I mean, when you look at sort of where they're at having to go across the country into a hostile environment, I mean, I think the burden's going to really fall on their coaching staff to find those holes in the Seattle defense and be able to get a footing early in the game. Do I necessarily trust their ability to do that? Ben McAdoo, offensive coordinator, um, where they're at offensively with their personnel. Obviously, they traded away Christian McCaffrey. They'd probably like to have him for this game if you're going to attack the Seattle run defense. So it feels like, the to me, the Panthers are relying on Seattle playing poorly Yeah, uh, to have a chance to do it. That's what it feels like, right? So, so if you're the Seahawks, the counter of that is just take care of business against a team you should beat. You know, like the Ram game was harder than it should have been. I think if they could go back and play the Ram game again, they'd probably win it by more. You know, they, they'd probably have an answer to some of those things early in the game. And it might feel a little bit more like the giant game, you know, where that would have been even right. worse, except for they fumbled at the two yard line and gave them a two yard drive. Right. Um, I think it's that sort of a thing. Like, like, could this be the game where they put it together? Right. Cause, cause even, like I said, even in the giant game, they made it easy. They kept the giants in the game longer than they should have been in the game through through some silly things, misfielding of a punt, that type of stuff, right? Then they and they dropped a ball. Didn't Tyler Lockett even drop a ball that would they normally would never drop? Um, those types of things, like put it together. This is a team you should put it together against. What are they great in? What's Carolina great in? What does Carolina have to play for, right? This should be the game where uh, there's some maturity, you know, some maturation shows, and you. You go out and win this thing 31 to 14 or 31 to 10, and it was never in doubt. I think that's what you'd really like to see against this opponent at this time of the year in this venue. And, you know, maybe that falls on Geno Smith and those guys hitting some big plays early because the running game may not be, you know, yeah. you know what you would hope it to be. Yeah, you know, there's only been Seahawks the last five games. There's only one of them that's really gotten to me. And a lot of that has to do with adjusted expectations for this team coming in for sure. And most of those losses happened early in the season when, you know, I, I still wasn't expecting them to compete for the playoffs. So, you know, they started two and three and then they won the four games in a row. And all of a sudden you're, you get reeled back in. Right. And, yeah. and hope sinks its claws into you. And, and the bucks game didn't even bother me that much. There's, there are so many other things going on that you can chalk it up to the field, the travel the bucks, being a good team with Tom Brady, all that kind of stuff. 
the Raiders game, the Raiders game was a tough one because they came into that one with three wins. Uh, I think the Panthers have three or four and, you know, same, same kind of thing. It's a home game. They were coming off their bye. It felt like they should roll the Raiders. Obviously that didn't happen. I get the feeling that there could be some residual benefit to that game because it was the first time that they had lost a game that they were favored as a team, right? This, this team has been viewed as underdogs for most of the season. They finally came in as a favorite home home team, their winning record fighting for the playoffs expectations have changed. And, and they had a letdown game. You can learn from that, right? Like they've, they've seen that they're beatable if they let up and if they get sloppy. So uh, I, I think there's, I think there's tape and a feeling that they can tap into that says, okay, yeah, you know what? This is still the NFL. Everybody on the other side of the ball is fucking awesome at football. We, we can't give them an inch just because they're a quote unquote inferior opponent. Yes. I also think the 40, the, the, the Raiders have the, have some good offensive infrastructure too. I think their running back Josh Jacobs is playing his oh butt off. I mean, he's really a tough player. Obviously, Devontae Adams is too. So they have some pieces on that team. And if you look at them throughout the year, the Raiders, they've been a top 10 offense, you know, for the most part, uh, a lot of the year. And so, um, you, know, you know, I think Carolina is not in that category, you know, so uh, also you're going to play the 49ers and the Chiefs, I believe, after that. So... <laughs> This Gotta one needs get this to be one. safely in the bag because yes. you're not winning both those games. I mean, I, I don't know. Do they beat the 49ers? I, I wouldn't want to bet on it. You know? <laughs> I you won't know. be betting on it. It's yeah. a huge opportunity game for them, but you could easily see Certainly. them losing the game. Right? Well, and, and you know, and we'll we'll talk about that in, in a minute with, you know, they're dealing with some uncertainty too. But, you know what, let's go ahead and do that. Let's Let's zoom back out. Let's look at these final five games for Seattle. Two questions. How likely is it, A, that Seattle makes the playoffs in your mind and B that they sneak up and win this division. I think it's very likely they make the playoffs. I would be a little bit surprised if they didn't. I would be also be somewhat surprised if they won the division. I think the, would you be more surprised if they missed the playoffs or won the division? Um, I guess I'd be more surprised if they missed the playoffs entirely. I think it sets up well for them to make the playoffs. You heard Uh, it here. Mike Sando is predicting the Seattle Seahawks to win the NFC West this year. We've got it on record. <laughs> wait, wait. Did you just trick me into that? Did I say, <laughs> no, no, no. Not, did I surprise more? All. I may have just said this. We're the putting out a of what huge graphic with your face yeah. on it. Yeah, I guess yeah. Everything. We're sending it's it off. Be really yeah. disingenuous. I, didn't I say the opposite? I say I'd be more surprised if they missed the playoffs than yeah. if they won the division. That's interesting. So I'd say this. Well, shoot. Uh, Austin Mock is our gambling guy who has all the fancy models. Okay, so I did. I did a column off of some of his numbers the other day. I think he had the CX at ninety percent playoffs. Yeah. Which seemed high to me. Um, it does. You know. You know why though. I. I think one. Seattle's got some winnable games down the stretch. The other thing is, there's really three teams competing for the final two spots. the The top five spots are locked up in the in the NFC. No one's catching the Cowboys for that top wild card spot. So the other two teams that are competing with Seattle for those final two spots are Washington and the Giants, who. Play each other other. one more time for one. And then they also still have the Eagles and the Cowboys who might be the two best teams in the NFC. And could be resting starters for those games, but we don't know. That's true. Um, That is true. That could happen. So Austin Moxcott right now today, Seahawks 85.6% playoffs, 19.8% division title. Okay. And that's kind of right in line with what you're saying. I kind of agree with that. Now, 
it is a big deal for the 49ers to lose their quarterback, but they already beat the Seahawks once. I'm not 100%. You know, I kind of feel like they might beat the Seahawks again. I'm not sure of that. Uh, I like their ability to kind of claw through this thing, uh, you know, and adjust to their quarterback and play, you know, great complimentary ball. So we'll see how that goes. I mean, if, if the 49ers, if, if uh, Brock Purdy has a four interception game, we might have our answer that that's not, you know, these percentages maybe mm-hmm. should change, but I'm not going to, I need to see that before, yes. um, before I say that. So I think there's yes. enough uncertainty with Seattle where they're at. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm, I, I'm with you too. And in line with that, let's look a little bit further forward. I want to get a quick feeling from you on the next one to two years of the NFC West. The Rams went all in to win a Super Bowl. They cashed in on it and now they're paying some pretty heavy taxes on that. Meanwhile, you've got the Seahawks, whose trajectory appears to be pointed steeply upward. The Cardinals can't seem to get out of their own way. And then, of course, you have the 49ers, who might have the best roster in the NFL outside of quarterback because they are still somehow still facing an enormous question mark at that position. Talk to me about what this division looks like in 2023 and beyond. Yeah, it looks a lot better for the Seahawks than a lot of people thought it would. I think the 49ers are still going to be there. You know, I think that Kyle Shanahan's not going anywhere. And I think that he's got, you know, he's got sort of the buildings of a program there, right? And he has a, a style of how to win the games. And he, he knows exactly how to do that. And they're good defensively. So we'll see the defensive part because D'Amico Ryans will probably become a head coach. Uh, Kyle Shanahan is not a defensive coordinator. So that will be the next challenge for him, right? To make sure he's either got somebody in-house because by then he will have lost Robert Sala to a head coaching job and he's going to lose to Miko Ryan. So how many bullets are there in that gun, right? For him, because that could be a big issue down the road. If they don't have a good defensive coach, you can't take that for granted by the same token, Vic Fangio could walk in that door next year and they could be, <laughs> I mean, really is there the a more attractive yeah. opening for a defensive coordinator next yeah. year? I mean, that, than you, this defense yeah. with Nick Bosa and Fred yeah. Warner and on down the line. Yeah. I, I, I think there's a good chance Vic Fangio will be their coordinator next year, just off the top Ooh. of my head. So, because uh, I think Ryan's will be in that mix to get a job, uh, get a head coaching job. I think he's that impressive. So uh, I think they're in good shape. They're, they're probably the team that you uh, might have to worry about the, the most. You know, the Rams, I, I think there's so much volatility and uncertainty there because I do have concerns for Matthew Stafford and how long he's going to play. I think once they won the Super Bowl, that really changes everything. It's sort of like winning the lottery, Right. You buy lottery tickets, and then when you win that lottery, I'm guessing I've never won lottery, but I would think you win that lottery, and it's like, whoa, this is a lot different than I thought. Like, uh-huh. how can you be hungry again, right? And I feel like that's a challenge. That's one of the things I really admire about like Jeff Lurie of the Eagles. They won the Super Bowl, and they're like reloading, like they're firing people and trading their quarterback, and we're back in this thing again. Mm-hmm. Uh, so for the Rams. Does that equation include Matthew Stafford for the next two or three years with their state of their offensive line? Does Sean McVay put in another year and go to TV and do the Sean Payton thing where he's a coveted coveted guy? Because I don't see McVay wanting to be there for a three-year rebuild. So I think we just need to have a feel by the end of the season for the Rams, like, what are they doing? Like, like what's their offseason going to look like? Because it looks a little more tenuous now. Um, you hear Certainly Stafford's is. wife talking, you know, about his future and he's won the Super Bowl. So what's he, what's he in it for two Super Bowls? Is that what mm-hmm. it is? I, I, I feel like they're in a tenuous place and then Arizona is just kind of married to Kyler Murray. So, you know, good luck to that with that <laughs> amount of money. I, 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 Actually. Okay. So, so Kyler just really quickly, Kyler is super fascinating to me, all the talent in the world, right? 
serious question marks when it comes to his leadership, face of the franchise type stuff. Uh, where where did he slot in uh, in the tiers this year? Yeah, so I believe he would have been low tier two. Um, okay. Low tier two, which I actually have this. Uh, yeah, he, he was low tier two. So, you know, but people have had concerns about him. And obviously the Cardinals did too. They put the clause in the contract. So I do think though that he is a very good talent. And I think that if you got the right uh, fit coaching wise and all of that, and maybe personnel wise too, that you could do a lot worse than him. Mm -hmm. You know, I think he's probably at a low ebb right now. Right. And it's easy to make fun of and all that. And, um, but there is, there is talent there. I just, I just don't know that I trust the whole organization of, of where they're going with it. And just the leadership on almost all the spots, right? Um, certainly you could see a coaching change happen there. What would that mean? Are they going to keep the same GM? They paid all those guys coming into the year. So, you know, organizationally, I think you feel like CX are in a pretty good spot and the 49ers are probably their most likely, most difficult competition with the Rams as a real wild card because, they don't have the resources. They could have, be needing a new quarterback. They, they brought in Baker Mayfield. That could be with a, a look to next year, too, Yeah, depending what yep. happens. I was so. thinking about that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah totally. Yeah. So, and, you know, I don't think Aaron Donald's playing forever, all of that. There's a there's a temporary feeling to them that I think is justified. Yeah. Yeah. All right. One last thing, and then we'll get out of here. What's it like voting for the Hall of Fame? I mean, I imagine everyone takes a unique approach to casting their ballot, and I've always been fascinated by it. What can you tell us about your process? Yeah, so before I was on the Hall of Fame Selection Committee, which is sometime, I think I have less than 15 years on it, but probably more than 10 years, somewhere in there. I was like everybody else. I would not be paying attention to anything, and then the announcement would come out, and I'd be like, what are these guys thinking? Chris Carter (laughs) didn't, I remember thinking this specifically, Chris Carter didn't make the Hall of Fame? These guys are just idiots. I mean, he had the best hands. I mean, you can't find a better receiver. Then you get into the room and you realize, okay, wait a minute. There's 15 names here and there's five slots. Okay, so there's... You guys get into a room? Oh, yeah. we will Together? Last, since, since COVID, we have a Zoom, which okay. is way... I actually like it. But we used to... Uh, we used to... There's, there's 50 people or whatever on the committee. The day before the Super Bowl, we would, we would go into like a hotel ballroom and there would be like a table set up in a... A uh, big square around the outside of the room, and then, like at one end of the table, you'd have like the president of the Hall of Fame and Hall of Fame brass, and they're sort of like the ones who make sure all the bylaws are followed and all of that, right? Then out in the hallway, you would literally have. You ever watch like the NBA draft, and it's like Deloitte and Touche, and it's guys in suits that do uh, have CPAs. Literally, hilariously, there's like ten of those guys there on call. So we we as we do our ballot reductions. You're literally writing it down your vote on a piece of paper. Like it's not like a, this type of paper, but it's like, you know, <laughs> yeah. like, like literally writing it down on like a piece of white paper. And then you hold it up over your shoulder. And these guys come in in suits that could all do like taxes for billion dollar corporations, presumably. And they take these out of your hand and they go out in the hallway and count them. Can you believe that that <laughs> this is the biggest overkill thing? This is, this is having, this is having, you know, this is having the most beautiful-minded mathematician come into your, you know, 
elementary school subtraction lesson, right? I mean, that, that's literally what we're doing. So we do that. And then uh, there's rounds of this voting. And in between, you talk about the, the candidates, right? So like I am the representative for the Seattle market. So Walter Jones is up this year. I have, I have five to seven minutes or something to talk in the room and give the case, you mm -hmm. know, and your heart does get going because, because, you know, you feel an obligation to do the best job for whoever it is you're doing. And you've invested a lot of research. And while, yes, I'm all about the process and all of that, in that moment, I'm trying to do the best job that I can, you know, to, for that person. So you do feel that the weight of that. And then, then when you're um, voting, you know, you, you say your piece, you kind of think you might know how the room's leaning, but you don't really know. And with, okay. with 15, uh, people in five slots, there's 3000 unique combinations of five that are possible mathematically. So the five that make it might not be anyone's five. Do you understand that? Yes. So it might not be anyone's five. And we reduce from 15 to 10 to five. And when they, they, when they come back in, they read off the names. That is such a dramatic thing. I like, bet. like they read them off kind of alphabetically. They're like, here's who's been eliminated. And then they read those names and there, there will be some, you know, somebody there'll be some, you know, cause, cause everyone's on the edge of their seat. And, and, wow. and then, and then we know who it is. And then you can't tell anybody. And then do you let the like white smoke go off like the Vatican? Yeah, totally. But, <laughs> but there's, because there's no one else in on this process, your mind, if you're not in it, your mind races. These guys are trading votes. These guys, it's kind of like government, right? It's kind of like, oh, these guys behind closed doors, what they must really be doing. Uh, you know, and then I think some of the people that vote probably like overestimate their influence. That they, they, you know, maybe somebody did say, yeah, you know, I'll vote for this guy. That's a bunch of BS. Like there's not side, <laughs> in my opinion, there's not like side deals. Cause when you do your ballot, no one can see how you vote. You vote for uh -huh. who you want to vote for. There's That's nothing. Cool. There's no pressure. There's no one saying, oh, hey, you vote for this guy. I vote for that. That just wouldn't work. So I think the process is pretty good that way. The problem is just um, doing the best research we can to have criteria. That's the thing I've been working on is criteria. I have so I have a question about that. So I'll and I'll use running backs as an example for you specifically. How do you weight longevity versus prime? And to give a couple examples, I'm talking about like a a Curtis Martin or a Frank Gore who just they they just tabulated yards and touchdowns over a super long period of time versus someone that burned brighter yeah. and briefer like a Jamal Charles or a Jamal Lewis, someone like that. Okay, so I've done two pieces on this for The Athletic in the last six months, I believe. One of them on running backs, one on wide receivers. And here's what I just, I've decided on. This isn't just a litmus test that you, you can check a box and that you're in the Hall of Fame, but this is, I like to measure elite production, okay? A combination of elite production and longevity. So for running backs, when I did this, um, I looked at the career arcs for running back production. And I said, what I'm going to do is I'm going to look at the six best seasons for each running back. Hmm. And so what I did was I did a, I took a general cutoff of like, okay, you have to have rushed for, I'm going to, I don't have the number in, in my head here, but let's say you have to rush for 5,000 yards or 7,000, something to where we get the people mm -hmm. in the room that we're talking about, right? You have to have a certain threshold. Yep. Then I said, okay, now let's take your 
six best yards from scrimmage totals. That brings in the catching the ball thing, right? So we have a group of rushers. You have to be a rusher. But with now, once you're a rusher, I'm going to now value Ricky Waters. You caught the ball. I'm going to put that in. So now what I did for every guy was I said, okay, if you led the league in a given year in yards from scrimmage, you get a 1.00 percentile. That's as good as you can get. And then for every other guy in every year of his career, I did the percentile of where they were in scrimmage yards that year. That's how you adjust for eras. Okay, so now we're talking about what did Jerome Bettis do from scrimmage in his sex best years? And we're doing that for Walter Payton, even though they didn't play in the same time, but we're uh-huh. measuring them against their peers in their best years. And so six years was the perfect thing. Cause I noticed a lot of running backs didn't have more than that. You start going four years and now you're getting people who just had four good years, you know, and they're not, you wouldn't think of them as a hall of famer. So when I did that, it came out to like, it was a really cool list. Like Marshall Falk was in the top seven or something where if you just did rushing yards, he might not be, but we all know Marshall Falk was freaking great. You know, he was great. So I did the same thing for wide receivers, but I did eight years of receiving yards. uh, Cause I found eight years was a realistic number to balance longevity with elite production. Uh, and most of the top receivers had had eight good years. So when I did that, what was really cool about that was, so Jerry Rice and Don Hudson were tied for number one. They each led the league like at least six times. So those are the clear, and I've known that from studying history, those are the clear gold standard receivers. Don Hudson had 99 receiving touchdowns in like, and like retired, you know, whatever, uh, 70 years ago. And it took until Steve Largent to break that. So that's freaking legitimate. I mean, you have a record for 50 years. <laughs> That's number one, right? So then the third guy was Randy Moss. The fourth guy, surprisingly a little bit, was Torrey Holt. But he had 10 years of elite production. The fifth guy was Steve Largent. Well, when I saw that, then I know I got this right. Because I know Steve Largent, Jerry Rice, and Don Hudson are the only three guys since World War II to retire as the kings of receptions, receiving yards, and receiving touchdowns. Those are mm. real guys. Those guys, if those guys are in your top five, you've got it. You got the right guys. And then, then there's a couple surprising revelations that along the way, I'm like, oh, like Jimmy Smith was higher than I thought. You know, Jimmy Smith like came into the top 20 and I was like, wasn't expecting that. Now we can debate. Should he be, was he this or that, but measuring elite production that told me, okay, he was better than maybe than, than we thought. Henry Ellard was pretty high. Mm-hmm. So then I, mm-hmm. but the, I just like, I talked to Mike Haynes this week for an hour on something else I was doing. Cause he, I was talking about receivers. Like I'm trying to learn. I want to learn. So cool. And I love that type of stuff. Like the, the research leads to these conversations. And then I talk to the, like, I've talked to so many players over the years and, and then you just sort of patch this all together wow. to find out who's really real, you know? And I love it. I, I love the research. Man, that is so, that's so cool. That is one of the coolest stories we've, we've heard on this show, man. Cause, cause to me, it's just, it's a black box, right? They release the names and, oh my God, I can't believe they snubbed so-and-so. And so so now understanding, like it's a reminder, there's only five any given year that get in, which is, which is pretty But I want to bring this criteria to it. So this last year I did another one on head coaching criteria because I had to do the presentation for Mike Holmgren. So besides just going into a room and being like, okay how can I make the best possible case of Mike Holmgren and denigrate the other candidates so Mike Holmgren <laughs> gets in? That's not what I'm doing. I don't want to do that. I'm doing, let's, how do we evaluate head coaches? 
right? And so the things I'm thinking of is, okay, if you're Don Shula, we don't have to talk about it. Right. But what are the other ways to different head coaches? And I came up with a criteria like, okay, did you, did, did you succeed in more than one place? Right. Things like that. Did you succeed with more than one quarterback? Because in football, the farther away you get from the ball, the harder it is to tell who gets the credit. Right. We can yeah. all pretty much yes. watch the game and know if the receiver's amazing. But we don't really know if John Robinson should have got fired from the Titans. Right. <laughs> yeah, we don't really know. Totally. I mean, we, we kind of think, but we look at his drafts. We don't know. Is he the whole key to the operation? Is he holding him back? We don't know. People thought Russell Wilson was being held back by Pete Carroll, who watched, they watched the games every week for 10 years. And they thought, guilty. They thought guilty. Pete Carroll was holding back Russell Wilson. Think how hard this is. Right. So you have to have some kind of a criteria. And to me, on the coaches one or the receivers, running backs, these are all like puzzles that we're trying to solve. And I, and it's like the most fun I have of anything I do. That's awesome. Well, Mike, so, this this has been incredible, man. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time to come in. Yeah, thank you. It's good. Yeah. Well, listen, before we go, where can the people who are listening to the show get more of your stuff? Okay, at The Athletic. If you got The Athletic app, you can find my story in there. You subscribe. I'll be a big hero. They'll know that you were reading my story and you subscribed. It'll, it'll be great. And then uh, also I'm on Twitter sometimes. I don't, I don't spend a ton of time on Twitter, but sometimes at, San, at SandoNFL, not .com, at SandoNFL. There you go. All right. All right. Wonderful. Well, thank you again, Mike. As always, you can find the other Mike and I on social media as well. I am on Twitter at, at Jackson Bevins. That's J-A-C-S-O-N. Mike is at, at Mike Barwin. And the show itself is at Cigar Thoughts. You can also find us on Instagram at Cigar Thoughts NFL and on Facebook at Seahawks Cigar Thoughts. Of course, you can listen to this show and read every article at fieldgoals.com slash Cigar Thoughts. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts and like the show, drop us a five-star rating, leave us a quick review. To everyone out there, thank you so much for your continued support of the show. Feedback has been incredible. Please know that by sharing the show on social media and with your friends, you really are giving us the juice to make this happen. We'll be back soon, but in the meantime, onwards and upwards, my friends. Oh, 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 oh,